This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Sunday, November 5th, 2023. I'm Jared Halpern. The Biden administration is balancing a war between Hamas and Israel, the president's economic agenda, and negotiations with a new House speaker. We review the week that was. Antony Blinken, the secretary of state and others suggest that they are negotiating uh, what they are calling these humanitarian pauses. These, they say, are not a ceasefire. I'm Jessica Rosenthal. It's Election Day on Tuesday, and one southern state may decide to keep its Democratic governor, while another may bring one on in the place of the Republican they have now, as two other states debate abortion. You see some of the Republican candidates trying to talk in different ways about this, um, more, I think, uh, compassionately in different ways. But I think it's still a tough argument to make. This is the Fox News Rundown from Washington. It's been a busy week for President Biden. Take it from me. It's Jared Halpern. I actually spent most of Friday traveling with the president as he visited with families and victims impacted by last month's horrific mass shooting in Lewiston, Maine. President Biden added that trip to a schedule that also included hosting nearly a dozen leaders from South and Central America and the Caribbean for a Western Hemisphere summit, a trip to Minnesota to tout rural funding as part of Bidenomics, and of course, daily briefings from his national security team on the war between Hamas and Israel and Gaza and the delicate diplomacy to secure the release of Americans and hostages. So given all of that and my travel, Fox News radio course Correspondent Kristen Goodwin, who you hear on our election and political coverage, is helping us out and joining me this week for a chat about the agenda and the politics of the presidency this week. Hello, Kristen. Hey, Jared. Thank you. So I want to talk about the Israel-Hamas war, Gaza evacuations. Uh, there's continued focus on the Israel-Hamas war. President Biden making headlines suggesting a pause in the conflict is needed mm-hmm. to give time to get prisoners out during a campaign reception in Minneapolis after a protester called for a ceasefire. Mm-hmm. Jared, this humanitarian pause in Gaza, seemingly the focus for U.S. officials, including Secretary of State Antony Blinken during a trip to Israel, Uh, They say this would allow food, water, medicine, other aid to be rendered in the region and help with hostage releases. It really seems President Biden is under a lot of pressure to respond to what humanitarian groups are calling a crisis for civilians. What's the latest messaging from the White House on this? Yeah, it has seemed almost like mixed messaging, but the the White House and the National Security Council insist this is nothing new. That from the you know for for the last several days, you've heard uh, Antony Blinken, the Secretary of State, and others suggest that they are negotiating uh, what they are calling these humanitarian pauses. These, they say, are not a ceasefire. And the White House and the national security folks have been clear that they do not support a ceasefire 
in this war, that they say a ceasefire, where basically Israel lays down its arms, Hamas lays down its arms, and there is no fighting at all, no hostilities at all in Gaza, would only benefit Hamas. What they say is needed is a much more tactical humanitarian pause that is very limited in basically the scope and the longevity. Uh, the way that it has been described by John Kirby, the National Security Council spokesperson um, who had a, a long career uh, right to the rank of admiral in the U.S. Navy, is that it is not uncommon uh, for both parties in a conflict to say for a limited amount of time, maybe a matter of days, maybe a, a matter of hours, to not have an exchange of hostilities in a geographic location, uh, maybe a few miles, maybe a little bit more of an area, but that it would be needed to get both aid into the region and hostages or, or other uh, refugees out of the region. Again, maybe that happens on, say, the southern half of Gaza, and you would still see airstrikes continue in the northern half, where Israel has really been focusing a lot now of its military operations in and around uh, Gaza. A city, but they caution this has to be agreed to by everybody in the region. The Israelis, Hamas, uh, Qatar has been playing a large role on the diplomatic side. Obviously, Egypt plays a big role on the diplomatic side because people leaving uh, Gaza uh, have to enter into Egypt. Aid that goes into Gaza has to enter from Egypt. And so the White House uh, has been very uh, clear that what they are calling for is not. A ceasefire, that this is something much smaller in scope and, again, something that is not uncommon when you are trying to get the release of hostages. In other words, if you're if people are getting out, right, let's say that there is a rescue operation or even a diplomatic breakthrough that has allowed the release of hostages. And we've seen a couple of those examples over the last couple of weeks. You need to be able to make sure that, you know, whoever is meeting them, whether it's the Red Cross, the U.N., whoever can safely get to where those hostages are and safely get them out. So, again, that's kind of what the White House says that, that these diplomatic efforts are focused on. Not a ceasefire, they say, a, a diplomatic pause in hostilities. Again, it's kind of uh, a, a mixed message, it may sound like, but from a military point of view, we're told uh, these are very different operations. Right, right. And Jared, we also saw this week Israeli warplanes hit a refugee camp in northern Gaza for the second time in two days, targeting what Israel says was a Hamas military command center deliberately hidden under civilian homes. Uh, Americans and folks all around the world are really sharing their concerns about civilians, especially children on both sides of this conflict, Israelis and Palestinians. Has there been any specific messaging or response on this from the Biden administration? The administration insists that they continue to have regular conversations with the Israelis on uh, reducing the the risk of civilian casualties. But again, they note that in a type of conflict that has uh, that, that's essentially urban warfare, there are going to be civilian casualties and, and they don't like that. And it is a tragedy. But that is 
the the nature of this type of warfare and that U.S. officials are helping um, with planning and at least helping with, with kind of advice on on urban warfare. Obviously, the United States military has a lot of experience over the last 20 plus years with operations in in Afghanistan and, and certainly in Iraq with this type of, of urban warfare and trying to root out terror groups and other threats while minimizing uh, civilian casualties. At the same time, what we've heard repeatedly from John Kirby is that the United States is not going to respond in real time to operations that are carried out by Israel, that it's the IDF, it's the Israeli Defense Forces to explain their rationale, explain their targeting, explain this operation. The United States is not involved in this war. There are not combat troops, uh, U.S. combat troops in Israel. And so uh, the White House, the administration has been kind of hesitant to weigh in um, on on these types of operations, not wanting to second guess necessarily the decisions made by the defense forces, but at the same time saying that, listen, we have told Israel that there is an obligation to um, uphold the rules of war, that as democracies, we hold this in high regard, and that they have every expectation uh, that Israel will abide by the laws of war. But again, there is an awful lot of pressure building, not just internationally, but even domestically, from a lot of the Democratic base on whether or not the response that we've seen from Israel over the last week has been um, appropriate. And so those are questions that the administration continues to feel but so far not wanting to weigh in too strongly uh, any direction on what they say are operations entirely at the direction of the Israeli Defense Forces. Yeah, I want to talk about that, too. The U.S. lawmakers on both sides of the aisle have been sharing concerns about the the conflict. Democrats, including Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders, writing to President Biden about the likely humanitarian toll Mm -hmm. uh, and the what he called political reality that could be felt in the wake of a large scale ground invasion by Israeli forces. Uh, GOP Senator Marsha Blackburn of Tennessee writing a letter to uh, National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan calling for transparency. Uh, I want to touch on that. Do you feel the White House has been more vocal about a humanitarian pause to the conflict because of this domestic pressure? What's what's your take on that? It's hard to tell if it's because of the domestic pressure or because of the reality on the ground. Remember, it took several days for the United States to negotiate a deal that allowed any humanitarian aid to make it into Gaza. Now you are seeing those relief trucks uh, flow into Gaza. Uh, at a much greater rate, um, upwards of, of several dozen sometimes uh, aid trucks making it across the border. So I think that also uh, increases the uh, the urgency here, right? In, in other words, part of getting that aid to where it needs to go is, um, you know, a, a a commitment that those relief workers aren't going to to get caught up in in airstrikes or retaliatory uh, strikes from Israel or Hamas. Right. And so I do think that plays into this is just sort of the logistics now of, okay, aid is getting in. People are getting out. That's the new reality that has to be addressed. Part of addressing that, the White House, the administration says, is trying to secure that in a safe way. Part of that in a safe way, they say, is trying to to get agreements on some of these humanitarian pauses, which they say, by the way, have happened in very short spurts, again, uh, to get people, primarily these hostages that were released by Hamas, uh, out safely. So I think that there is part of that is certainly there is a, a, a 
political pressure, right? They want to be seen as uh, caring about the Palestinian cause. And I think they do care about the Palestinian cause and and pointing out that uh, civilians in Gaza are victims of Hamas, just as Israel are victims of Hamas. Um, And there is a reality here that that this is a dire situation. But again, there's also a reality that for the first time since this war began, aid is starting to get in uh, at a much greater clip and that that requires a new kind of strategy from a, a military point of view. Right, right. Yeah. And I want to touch on, I know you mentioned dozens of Americans and their family members were able mm-hmm. to make it out to the Egyptian side of the Gaza border. Or at least make, 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 we should say making it out. There was a list of about 400 Americans on a list to leave uh, over the next couple of days. Um, there were five that made it out one day. There were, uh, I think, upwards of, of 70 or so that made it out a day later. And so that flow continues. The White House insists that it's still going to take probably a few more days to get every everybody out, but that they do believe that for the first time since this war began, American passport holders who were in Gaza um, are finally being allowed to leave again through Egypt. And then from Egypt, uh, the, the U.S. State Department kind of takes them onward to wherever it is that they'd like to go. In uh, the House passing a GOP-led bill to give Israel more than $14.3 billion in aid, that vote uh, mostly along party lines. Can you talk to me a little bit about that? It looks like uh, yeah. it's setting up a clash in the the Senate where Democrats <laughs> yeah. say, you know, they prefer an aid package that also includes money for Ukraine. Yeah, and listen, we should be clear that there are a lot of Senate Republicans who want to do this uh, in the way that the president envisions too, where it links that money uh, to Ukraine, Israel, uh, the Indo-Pacific region, and the border. And that seems to be the move that's going to happen in the Senate. It's going to be a little bit different, I think, than what the president put forward. But there are a couple of other issues that Democrats had with this Israel-only package. One, pays for that Israeli aid, about $14 billion, by rescinding uh, funding uh, that was included in the Inflation Reduction Act to boost the enforcement capabilities of the IRS, additional IRS agents. The idea being that the the agency was understaffed, they need more people, Democrats say, the the administration says, uh, to go after uh, corporate and high-income tax cheats. And so that's part of it, sort of conditioning aid Uh, for domestic policy is something that a lot of uh, Democrats are very uncomfortable with. The other problem that uh, a lot of Democrats had with this package is it did not include a lot of that humanitarian money that also is included in what the president's asking for, money for these relief agencies working in Gaza in the West Bank. Obviously, there is concern that that money benefits Hamas. Uh, The White House says that they have safeguards to prevent that, uh, but that this aid, this relief money needs to get uh, to Palestinian civilians. And so there were a couple of issues with that. Again, it sounds like what the Senate is going to do is take up a proposal much more in line with what the president put forward, about $105, $106 billion money for uh, Israel, money for Ukraine, money for the southern border, money for the Indo-Pacific region. We do expect Republicans in the Senate to probably successfully 
uh, increase some of the border uh, provisions, maybe not funding-wise, but they are looking for some policy changes as well in border enforcement and immigration enforcement. That will be something that plays out over the next couple of weeks, and, and we'll be interested to see sort of uh, how that uh, is handled in the House, assuming it gets through the Senate, goes back to the House. This has been really the first real test uh, for the new Speaker. Remember, Mike Johnson uh, just finished his first full week as Speaker right. of the House. Um, and so this is the big sort of first legislative challenge that he's facing, sort of taking on the White House, taking on the Senate, uh, and entering these types of, of very challenging funding negotiations. Yeah, absolutely. And on on the home front, speaking of border, the Democratic mayors of Chicago, Denver, Houston, Los Angeles and New York are pressing the Biden administration for more federal assistance to manage mm-hmm. the surge of migrants in their cities. The president requested one point four billion dollars from Congress to help state and local governments provide shelter and services for migrants. But in a letter, these mayors have asked for five billion dollars, stressing yeah. city budgets and local taxpayers continue to bear the brunt of what they call this ongoing federal crisis. What's on the administration's agenda regarding this? And has the White House responded to that call for more funding? Yeah, it's notable because these are Democratic governors of major U.S. cities kind of pushing back on the White House and saying what you are providing is not nearly enough for the migrant crisis that exists right now. And, you know, we have seen images and these mayors have shared stories of migrants essentially having to set up shop in Uh, public spaces, whether it's, um, you know, sort of police department stations, firehouses, in some cases, almost like convention center type public spaces that the act as de facto shelters. And they say that the one and a half billion dollars or so is not nearly enough to to change uh, their needs to, to cover those costs. It's notable, though, Kristen, that they're not just asking for money. They want some policy changes as well. One of the things that uh, these Democratic mayors, especially um, uh, Mayor Adams in New York City and and the Denver mayor have said, is that they want uh, the administration to move forward on on allowing these migrants uh, work opportunities to be able to lawfully work in the United States, because they say if they can work lawfully and they have people who want to hire them, that would ease a lot of this burden because they would then have income. They would be able to, to you know, afford rent, would be able to, to provide their own housing. And so that's part of this as well. The administration kind of being pushed, not just on the funding side, but on their policy side. Now, the White House has said that they are engaged with these mayors. They are listening to what they have to say, uh, but they really are putting the impetus here on Congress to cover um, not just funding, but a more comprehensive bill as it deals with with immigration and deals with how migrants are treated. That, Kristen, is unlikely to to get a lot of uh, momentum. I mean, that's something that Congress has been working on, as you know, for decades without a lot of bipartisan cooperation. Yeah, and I think I think it was uh, Mayor Mike Johnson, uh, Johnston of Denver, Denver. who said, uh, you know, that uh, one of the main things he keeps getting asked from migrants is, can you help me find a job? Going back to what you were saying about that. And he says there there are employers that want them. Yeah, that that, listen, there there are jobs that can't be filled and that this would, would help their local economy. It would get migrants an opportunity to not have to. 
uh, live in in these de facto shelters. That would obviously take the burden off of the city cities to right. provide uh, a lot of this support. But again, uh, the White House so far has has not sort of agreed to any of these demands, or at least re- I guess use the word request. It may be a soft demand, a request from <laughs> from these from these Democratic mayors. They do say that they are very appreciative of the the help and assistance that they've received so far. They just say that it's inadequate. So I guess we'll we won't use the the demand word, but maybe a a hard request. <laughs> right. Absolutely. And you have a very busy day, a very busy week uh, traveling with the president, President Biden and First Lady Jill Biden making a visit to Lewiston, Maine to pay their respects after 18 people were fatally shot at a bowling alley and at a restaurant. The suspected gunman was found dead after a two day manhunt and questions remain about his mental state and the possible warning signs before the attack. Uh, Jared, this shooting has led to President Biden renewing calls for Congress to pass legislation addressing gun violence and suggesting his executive powers are limited in enacting stricter gun control. What are you seeing and is the administration doing anything differently after this particular shooting? There's not a lot more that the administration can do. As you point out, the president has said that from a um, standpoint of sort of executive actions, that they are pretty limited. The president has for months, really for years since his time in office, been talking about renewing uh, the assault weapons ban that was in place for much of the 1990s. He has called on Congress to enact some other uh, gun control measures as it relates to background checks. But listen, there's just not a bipartisan appetite for that in the United States Congress. It would need at least 60 votes in the Senate. Um, you would need a Republican-led House to go along with it. The, the political landscape is not one in which there is going to be um, legislation that the president is calling for. So he really is limited to, to the bully pulpit and trying to make the case here uh, as he goes to these communities that have been impacted uh, by gun violence. I'll say this as well, Kristen. I think it's been hard for the administration this week and really the last couple of weeks to break through on a lot of their domestic policy goals. The president earlier mm-hmm. this week was in uh, Minnesota for an event uh, at a family farm uh, talking about investments for rural America uh, as part of his Bidenomics agenda. But even at the top of that event, he spoke about the the events happening in uh, Israel, in Gaza. Uh, That has been sort of a common theme, even as he's on the road talking about his domestic policy and trying to build support for the economy, where polling shows he remains very underwater. Um, Those events are usually outsized because of what's happening uh, overseas. That's a challenge for any president, certainly of any party, when you have a major international crisis that uh, requires a, a lot of attention. But it, it's one of the challenges, too, that the president and his staff have of trying to break through on, on kind of the domestic front, um, given all of the uncertainty happening abroad in, in not just Israel, but Ukraine and certainly China and Taiwan and the Indo-Pacific region. Yeah, certainly a lot going on at home and and overseas. And I know, speaking of President Biden visiting Minnesota to promote his economic agenda, Mm -hmm. that's what I believe the first on a two-week trip across the U.S. to tout his investments in agriculture, right? Where is he headed next? And and how does that play into his uh, 2024 re-election campaign? Well, it's not necessarily the president's going to be making all of those trips. They kind of flank out cabinet secretaries. So expect to see a lot of uh, probably um, uh, events from from the agriculture secretary, from the commerce secretary. Um, but again, I think what the, the, the White House is frustrated, right, that they see really um, good signs for the economy, at least the trajectory of the economy. Uh, 
But public sentiment about the economy is often a lagging indicator. And so it's one thing for the president, I think, to say, well, you know, here's what the job growth looks like and here's how inflation looks from, you know, this period in time to that period in time. And kind of look at it from like the macroeconomic sense. He's trying to use these visits, going to a family farm to speak specifically about here's how these policies have an impact for, you know, everyday folks. Um, and that's the challenge, right? Because if you look at the polling, the number one issue for voters uh, is the economy, is inflation. On those two issues, the president still remains overwhelmingly unpopular. His policies remain overwhelmingly unpopular. That is a concern heading into an election year, and that's why you're going to see the administration continue to try their best to say, listen, here's what we're doing, and here's what we're seeing, and here's factories being built, and here's jobs being created. But again, until people actually experience that in their paychecks, in you know, at the kitchen table, uh, that is a hard sell for, for an awful lot of voters. And I, I want to talk about AI, Jared. Vice yeah, President it's been AI Kamala. week here, yeah. <laughs> I know. It's all over, right? It's I mean, everywhere. It, the, the Hill, the White House, London, England. Yeah, it's, it's crazy. Yeah. You're right. So the Vice President in um, the UK for a big sort of summit that was put on by the Prime Minister there, Rishi Sunak, um, the challenge with I think there are a lot of challenges with artificial intelligence. In fact, at two different points this week, uh, Chuck Schumer, the Senate Majority Leader, told me that this is the most challenging thing he's ever done from a legislative standpoint, and that lawmakers have oh, to wow. enter this with an awful lot of humility because it is an emerging technology. It is a technology that is not well understood. It's a technology with wide-ranging repercussions. You want to obviously safeguard against these sort of doomsday scenarios that we've been warned about, while at the same time making sure that the United States remains competitive, is not at a disadvantage. How do you regulate that? And in what they're focused on overseas at this uh, summit that, that the Vice President led for the U.S. Uh, is how do you get every other country to agree to the same rule book, right? If if the yeah. United States puts in regulations and says, listen, AI can't be used for X, Y, and Z, but another country doesn't have those same rules, what good is the U.S. regulation, right? It, it's not as if this is, you know, in a vacuum. AI is is out there, right? The internet, you know, how, how technology um, advances is not controlled by by borders right and so that's the challenge too is trying to reach consensus on kind of a global understanding of what the rules are with artificial intelligence that's going to play in as well to what congress i think ends up doing here in the next couple of months president biden this week laid out what is really the most expansive uh, executive order uh, on artificial intelligence. It dealt primarily with safety, requiring these major AI developers to show their work. In other words, show the U.S. government that uh, it has gone through these safety tests and was successful. It also directs the Commerce Department to create these sort of digital watermarks. So if you hear audio or see video that has been generated by artificial intelligence, that has to be uh, clear to the viewer, clear to the listener that this is artificial. I mean, one of the concerns, and I'm sure you've seen these these videos as well, Kristen, are these deep fakes, right? You can make oh, yes. people now sound as if they've said something that they've never said. Even President Biden talked about that this week, that he was shown videos of these deep fakes of him by his staff, and he said, when the hell did I say that? <laughs> you didn't say that. That's what, like, that... <laughs> that's the issue, right? <laughs> He's like, they fooled me. So, I mean, right. that's really... I mean, and listen, we laugh about it, but think about from an electoral standpoint how significant that would be 
in an election, if you're able, if an adversarial country or an adversarial group is able to, to even if it's short-lived, produce something uh, that is extraordinarily damaging to one side or the other. Right. Yeah. And I think Vice President Kamala Harris said uh, during that that discussion in London, she called it, it could create cyber attacks at a scale beyond anything we yeah. have seen before. That's right. That sounds like something out of, you know, a, a, a film. Uh, and, and AI has been a hot topic, not just this week, but this entire year, even popping up in labor union disputes. I mean, there's a yeah. lot of uncertainty about the technology. Right. I mean, listen, we've all seen the Terminator, right? It could get real dicey yeah. there. <laughs> but, um, more, I mean, more realistically, though, the reason labor unions are concerned is that there is a real issue that artificial intelligence can replace uh, a lot of jobs that are done by actual human beings. I mean, you're in Los Angeles. Yeah. That was a big part of the writer strike, wasn't it? The, the role that AI plays and their concerns that studios could rely more on AI. Um, for uh, writing, for what background actors, and that would take yeah. work away from actual human beings. And that's a concern yeah. not just for labor unions, but for politicians, for policymakers, for uh, a whole spectrum of industries. Right. Rights uh, to your likeness in perpetuity, I think, is the, yeah. the uh, very scary uh, discussion there. But uh, yeah, I think uh, a lot going on. Jared, you are a very busy man. Thank you so much for your time. Political anchor and Washington correspondent Jared Halpern. Uh, stay safe out there. Thank you. You too. Precise, personal, powerful. It's America's weather team in the palm of your hands. Get Fox weather updates throughout your busy day every day. Subscribe and listen now at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts. This Tuesday is Election Day. It's a small election day, but one nonetheless. In Kentucky, Democratic incumbent Governor Andy Beshear has been leading in the polls. I froze the gas tax when time was tough. I froze the motor vehicle tax when time was tough. What I won't do is recklessly uh, cut income tax in a short period of time and decimate our economy. His Republican challenger, Daniel Cameron, the state's first black attorney general, argued raging inflation happened under the leadership of Bashir, who's aligned himself with President Biden. And when he had the opportunity to provide tax relief by vetoing, uh, giving you tax cuts, he vetoed the tax cuts. You need a governor who wants to eliminate Kentucky's income tax. That'll be me. In Mississippi, Democrats have high hopes for Brandon Presley. Even in the red state where Tate Reeves is the incumbent governor, the second cousin of Elvis Presley has worked on utility issues in the state as an elected official as well as mayor of his town prior to this run. He says he's confident because it seems like Republicans are open to voting for him. I'm from northeast Mississippi. You know, there aren't any radical leftists in Nettleton, Mississippi, where I come from, population 1906. But abortion is dominating some of the conversation. Voting yes on Amendment 1 in Ohio will amend the state constitution to say one has a right to carry out one's own reproductive decisions. In Virginia, the governor's proposed 15-week ban is being used by Democrats to urge voters to reject Republican candidates in state House and Senate races. Well, of course, that's all they have to talk about is fear. And of course, they're standing for extreme abortion policies. We've been talking about a bill to protect life at 15 weeks with with exceptions where a baby can feel pain and i believe that this is going to be a decision between no limits 
and reasonable limits, and it's one that I think we will win. Nearly 70 percent of Virginians support our position. Governor Glenn Youngkin on recently with Fox's Laura Ingram. In Virginia's Senate, Democrats have a majority, 22 to 18. And in the state House, Republicans lead 48 seats to 46 with five vacancies. Millions of dollars have been poured into these races as both parties seek to impact the balance of power with a Republican governor in place. So is any one race more interesting or significant than another? I kind of look at the governor's races that I'm following in Kentucky and Mississippi as I think a key look at how a governor's approval rating impacts the race. Jessica Taylor is the Senate and governor's editor for the Cook Political Report. And whether Democrats can be competitive even in more rural, deep red areas. Now in Kentucky, we know that they are competitive and that's with the Democratic incumbent, Andy Bashir. there. He has remained incredibly popular from the outset of this race. I actually went and looked back at what I wrote for our initial rating of this race, which was lean Democrat back in January. Mm-hmm. And actually very little had changed. He enjoys very high popularity, 60% or higher. He is sort of one plaudits for how he handled Uh, the COVID crisis, for how he handled natural disasters in the state, from floods to tornadoes. And he's just been everywhere. And I think that he is someone, and granted, he's aided in part by his name because his father was another popular two-term Democratic governor that is well-liked in the states. He's pointed, he's made it about local and state issues and on economic successes that he has been able to bring into the state. While it was even a bit of a surprise that his challenger, the Attorney General um, Daniel Cameron, who became the first African-American elected statewide um, as a Republican in Kentucky when he won four years ago, decided to challenge him when he would have had a pretty easy reelection uh, in his own right and you know could have been looked at as a, as a contender down the line. They're both mm. young in their 30s and 40s. It also represents a pretty stark generational contrast from when you look at the at both parties actually and and their leadership. But instead he he ran he ran here against uh, Bashir and he's tried to sort of nationalize the race, tie Bashir to Biden, emphasize his own endorsement from Donald Trump, who won the state by 26 points, and, you know, use more, you know, issues that we've seen them try other places about transgender issues and uh, surgeries on minors and different things. But it, it really, the numbers haven't moved. It's not that I don't expect this to be a close race, because I think it will be, because the nature of a state like Kentucky um, remains very close. But Bashir even has a very high approval rating um, among Republicans. A morning consult survey this week found that 41 percent of people who voted for Trump approve of him. (laughs) Can I ask you, and I'm going to I know I'm interrupting, but I have to just ask you about what on earth that means. Right. As you just pointed out, this is a state that Donald Trump won by 26 points. This is a red state. And the Republican attorney general He's already proven he's tested, right? He's been elected. Mm-hmm. He's backed by Trump. And it looks like at this point, as we talk with just a couple of days to go, that that Governor Bashir will likely win again. Um, and this isn't in the face of like, you know, a highly controversial other Republican like a Matt Bevin, right? Like this is no, new term. Cameron has run a very good campaign. He's a very so confident what is candidate. this? Then what is is this just look, this isn't national politics. This is local politics. And if you play it right and you know your voters, then party doesn't matter as much. 
I, I do think voters absolutely look at a vote for governor and a vote for Senate very differently. Listen, if Andy Bashir were trying to run for Senate, I think he would get hosed um, <laughs> because if voters look at that as a choice of who do you want to represent you in the U.S. Senate? There's no prize for how many what party has how many governors nationally um, that they can look at this as a OK, we like this guy. We like the job he's done. And he has taken, you know, some more moderate positions. But again, I think emphasizing those local issues and emphasizing the economy, um, the argument just hasn't been there, I think, for a lot of people as to why to fire him. Um, we also have seen the issue of abortion play here. Hmm. Um, Kentucky has some of the most restrictive laws in the country, and um, they include no exceptions for rape and incest. And we have seen uh, Bashir's campaign go on the offensive probably one of the most devastating ads I've seen in a while, and even Republican sources have told me that this ad was just brutal for them, uh, featured a woman talking about how she was uh, raped by her stepfather when she was 12 and saying that, you know, Daniel Cameron essentially says I shouldn't have a choice in whether I should have to carry that pregnancy as a preteen to term. Mm. And, um, you know, we've even seen other other candidates down the ballot uh, say that they would lobby the legislature. And, and kind of what speaks to me that, we do do kind of see this race is different than the other down ballot races, you know, attorney general, uh, secretary of state, different things like that, is that you actually have the Republican secretary of state candidate that ran an ad featuring a clip of Bashir praising him, not of his party's nominee, but of oh, the Democrat. Wow. <laughs> um, you know, speaking of abortion, because Kentucky also rejected sort of enshrining right? A constitutional amendment that said no to abortion, right? And that was a big deal in a red state. But abortion is is being talked about on Tuesday beyond Kentucky, right? Like we've got an amendment in Ohio. And we also have Virginia's governor. This is sort of like the, the background issue, right? Like, Virginia's governor's proposing a ban on abortion after 15 weeks. And that's trickling down into um, I guess the the arguments both for and against Republicans and Democrats in these state house and Senate races because if you've got a Republican majority in the state house and the, and the Senate and a Republican governor then they're going to have you know sort of this mandate to carry out their agenda so abortion sort of lurking in the background there of of Virginia what are we to make of yet again abortion sort of defining some pretty critical races and issues here. Well, I talked about how voters look at a vote for governor differently, and I think they looked at the vote for governor differently four years ago when you had Republican Glenn Youngkin that won in a state that Biden had just carried by 10 points in Virginia. And he also remains popular. He's not on the ballot this time, and he actually can't run again in four years because Virginia is the uh, only state, or in two years, rather, Virginia is the only state that does not allow their governors to run for consecutive two-year terms. But he is trying to use some of that political capital to, you know, to keep keep the House of Delegates and to flip the state Senate um, to their favor and running particularly in these suburban districts where Republicans have had issues is trying to sort of turn the issue into a benefit for them on abortion, talking about this 15 week ban, but also, you know, you see you see some of the Republican candidates trying to talk in different ways about this um, more, uh, I think, uh, compassionately in different ways. But I think it's still a tough argument to make. So I think this is a test of whether in a post Dobbs world, can Republicans find a way to message or even if they come closer in some of these contests, is that a way, is that a path forward for Republicans in 2024? Because we saw across the board that they did not have a good way to talk about it and it absolutely hurt them at the ballot box in the midterm elections last year. 
Yeah, it's so, it's so weird. It's like the only time I've ever seen Republicans compare what they want to what Europe has. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's usually, I feel like Democrats are usually more favorable mm-hmm. to like European policy. Um, but if, if I see some people talking about if Republican Governor Youngkin fails here, that it will not only say a lot about the political temperature, right? If the state and the, if the state house and Senate, you know, don't, either go or stay red, then it, it not only sort of paints a national picture, but it will also indicate that he won't run for president. And I wonder if that's a big presumption, given what you just said, that yeah. Virginia, Virginia's governorships, you know, you can't run again, right? So maybe it, maybe he just waits. If, if he's still governor, like, why lose the job? Like, what are you sort of tea-leaving here? I've always been of the mindset that I think at this point, mounting a presidential campaign in a race that is dominated by Trump and where you have, you know, maybe some other alternatives that have been in the field, you know, Nikki Haley on the rise, you know, former UN uh, UN ambassador there. You still have Florida Governor Ron DeSantis in there. I think just, you know, a lot of deadlines have passed and I think the train sort of left the station. So maybe he gets a boost, but, and there certainly are people out there that, is, that are still sort of dream casting a, uh, a Yunkin campaign. But I think when you looked at, look at it practically that we're only a few months away from the first co- nominating contests, I, win or lose, I just don't see that as a viable path. When you see the amount of money though, that's been spent on these state, um, Senate and House races. Are you surprised or are you like, are you drawing from that? Like, oh, wow, people really think this, this is a big deal because it will be a national temperature check on on where people are broadly? Or is it more about Youngkin and the power in the state? Like what, what is this flood of money? I think it's a little bit of both. I do think Democrats want to retain their advantage on this and show that even if you have a more moderated message, that it's still not effective. Um, while I think Republicans do see it as a little bit of a test case of how can we speak more about this issue that will not completely destroy us at the ballot box. Okay. And finally, we have to touch on Mississippi, right? Governor Mm -hmm. Tate Reeves is the Republican incumbent facing Brandon Presley. And obviously every reporter and their mother is in love with the factoid that he's related (laughs) to Elvis Presley, right? They were second cousins. So is this race considered competitive now? Because we don't have good polling or a lot of yeah. polling, I should say. Is this race considered even slightly competitive because of uh, of Reeves' scandal over the, the welfare fraud scandal and that misspent money, some of which went to former NFL star Brett Favre? Or is this, um, you know, is this not really competitive like Mississippi is a, is a red state and it's just fun to watch? I do think it is competitive at this juncture when you see the amount of money that Presley has been able to raise. And granted, a lot of it has come from the National Party. And as um, Reeves likes to point out, a lot of it came from California and New York and Massachusetts. But here's someone and here's also a case where abortion is not an issue because Presley has even said that he's pro-life and he's run as talking about his faith and his upbringing in a, as a very, you know, talking about dirt floors that his family had and how his father was murdered before he started third grade. So he, he sort of has this hard scrabble upbringing and he, he is running the type of campaign that you have to run in a state like Mississippi to even be competitive. And while I talked about the very strong approval ratings that Bashir has in Kentucky that are somewhat inoculating him, and you mentioned we don't have really good consistent polling, but Reeves is sort of in the middle of the pack, at least according to surveys that national surveys that is, um, you know, test all of the Republicans or all of the all of the 50 governors rather. Um, 
No, he's not underwater, but he's sort of middling, you know, somewhere around like in the 40s, 50s or different things. Is that enough to lose in Mississippi? I'm skeptical. We moved this race from likely Republican to lean Republican last week, indicating that we consider it now competitive. But I also think a Democrat in the race has a ceiling of maybe 46, 47 percent. Now, there is the potential because there is a third candidate in the race, an African-American woman um, who has dropped out and has endorsed Presley, but she still remains on the ballot that no candidate gets 50 percent which could mean a runoff three weeks later i still think reeves has the advantage there but um a lot of republicans i've talked to in this state are concerned they're concerned about turnout and the key to presley here is really changing the makeup of the electorate and doing that in an off-year election is very hard they need to increase african-american turnout now mississippi has the largest percentage of black black people anywhere in the country but getting them to turn out to vote and voting access is still an issue so uh i I still think in an off-year election it's very tough and mississippi is just a very very republican state so I absolutely think Reeves still has the advantage going in there. But this is one that could be closer than expected um, because of Presley's strengths. And as you mentioned, some of those scandals, which Reeves has correctly pointed out, were involving his predecessor. Right. But you know, also we have the issue of Medicaid expansion that has really uh, been emphasized. And they had a debate on Wednesday night, and this was probably the most tense issue that was discussed um, because you have a lot of rural hospitals in Mississippi closing down. You have such a high percentage of people in poverty and on welfare. But that's another thing that Presley has made a real cornerstone of his uh, of his campaign while Reeves has, would not expand that issue. So you have other issues that even, you know, more red states have expanded. Um, and the additional money that would come into the state. So I think it's a combination of issues. Is that enough to pull off such a seismic upset? I remain skeptical, but would I be shocked if this one goes to a runoff? I wouldn't. Jessica Taylor, the Senate and Governor's Editor at the Cook Political Report. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. That'll do it for this edition of the Fox News Rundown from Washington. This week, Tuesday is Election Day. We're keeping an eye on governor's races in Kentucky and Mississippi, as well as House and Senate races in Virginia. But we're also tracking House and Senate conversations at the federal level about emergency aid funds to Israel and Ukraine. I'm Jessica Rosenthal, and this is the Fox News Rundown from Washington. Stay up to date by subscribing to this podcast at foxnewspodcasts.com. Listen ad-free on Fox News Podcasts Plus on Apple Podcasts. And Prime members can listen to the show ad-free on Amazon Music. And for up-to-the-minute news, go to foxnews.com. Put the power of over 100 meteorologists and the worldwide resources of Fox in your hands with the Fox Weather Podcast. Precise, personal, powerful. Subscribe and listen now at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts.